Welcome to Rome. This is The Bittersweet Life with Katie Sewell and Tiffany Parks. Hello, this is The Bittersweet Life. I'm Katie Sewell. This is a show for expats and travelers, former expats and people curious about the world. If you're new to the show, starting at the beginning isn't a bad idea. It is about a physical and mental journey after all. Come along for the whole ride. Today, a very special episode, recorded live at Cafe Nordo in Seattle. For the show, I teamed up with Steve Scher, a 28-year veteran host at NPR, and my former partner for a decade of live morning radio. Our guest was celebrity chef Terry Rotero, known in Seattle as the chef in the hat. He was an expat from France before becoming an American citizen. Today, we hear his story of becoming a chef in France and get tips on how to eat well no matter what kind of cook you are. Steve Scher and I started the show by describing what kind of cooks we are, personally. A warning, there is explicit language in this episode. Thank you. Good to see you all. It's the same thing I always say, but you know, you do radio for 28 years, you never see the people you're talking to. It's true. It's kind of great to see everybody. So that's Steve Scher. Uh, I'm Katie Sewell. What kind of a cook would you say you are? Steve? I have become a, an adventurous cook without a high degree of understanding of taste. What, is that, what does that even mean? <laughs> I like to try lots of different things. Sometimes I'll follow a recipe. I like to use a lot of different ingredients. I like to see if I'm doing it right when it's done. And I look at my sister or my wife and they go, was that but um my wife is a great cook delia is a great cook and she she always gets her spices her mixes right her combinations right i'm not very good at that really i wish i was better at it but i i'm a little a little weak in that what about you he made me a good sandwich the other day um i yeah i, I would say i am the dagwood bumstead of uh <laughs> of, of northeast seattle yeah. it was great um i would say that i am a person who's talented enough to pull off a thanksgiving dinner but I'm also a person who generally eats like a fugitive if I'm cooking for myself, <laughs> which basically means you're, you're hunched what can over I in eat? the corner. Uh, well, I just don't put in the effort, and so if I'm busy at all, I just I'll just eat like I'll even buy sandwich meat and I won't build it into a sandwich. I'll just eat the meat. So I'm lazy, and I would you're like to know cook. better. Um, and I wouldn't say I'm a very confident cook, but um, Thanksgiving gave me a lot of confidence. Yeah, you can pull off a Thanksgiving dinner. You feel like you got it. Right? If you can pull off a Thanksgiving dinner, you're pretty good. That's why Terry's here, right? Well, Terry has been my advisor on my cooking for about 10 years now. So we should bring him out. Yeah. Let's bring him out. Terry Rotero, (laughs) Chef in the Hat. Does he come to your house and and advise you on food? He doesn't. (laughs) Hey, Terry. Mm. I have an intro for you. Cheers, Beard. everyone. Yeah. yeah, cheers. Let's start from the beginning. The time. <laughs> because Can I give you a little I, I intro? I might be a good cook, but I Does like to Does everybody know who Terry is? Do I need to tell you who he is? James Beard, award-winning man, owner behind Lule yeah. and Luke. <laughs> former uh, former owner yet. of Rovers. And uh, what? Seattle Kitchen on Cairo every mm-hmm. Saturday. And Saturday and a Sunday. Regular Cairo guest, Radio. A former regular guest looking inside people's fridges on weekday. 
So that's how we knew him. And have a seat. Let's relax. Thank you. Let's talk. Let's get in the dining room. What do you get? I mean, because we're you know, I don't know about you, but <clears throat> this they is will our be. <laughs> yeah. That's what I meant by great dinner. <laughs> so we wanted to start off kind of light, uh, and maybe actually call on some of you guys if you're willing to share. Um, what, when it comes to you, Terry, is your guilty pleasure food? I know you're a gourmet. Wait, I want to know, the... know what kind of cookie is first. What kind of cook are you? Oh, what kind of cook are you? Yeah, sure. I'm a cook who loves to eat, like many, many great cooks. I think that's one of the biggest secrets of good cooks is they love. That's how it has to start, because if you don't like to eat or you don't like to taste food all day long, you're definitely in the wrong business. Yeah. You know, they, they always Did say, you know cooks like that? Yes, I've met some. Yeah. Wow. That's pretty terrible. When you was a guy, like, I would never eat that shit. And they're like, what? Why are you cooking it? It looks good. It <laughs> yeah, looks exactly. good on the plate. It looks great. Why, why do they get into it then? That doesn't make any sense. They get into it because, they, because of, of the um, artistic side of cooking. Cooking is great because it's kind of like many art form. It has no beginning, no end. I mean, it has some kind of a beginning, but not really any end. You know, you can do whatever you want in cooking. You can basically cook like Steve, cook like you, cook like me, cook like anybody. It doesn't really matter. You still make a meal in the end, and you feel proud of it, and you sit down around the table, and you eat it with friends, family, people you hate, with poison in it. Yeah. <laughs> There's just a little bit. <laughs> so, What's that taste? Oh, don't worry about it. But, but it's when a you, new vegetable. You when won't you, mind in an When you say you're, you're a cook, you're the kind of cook who likes to eat. But you just we all are that. I mean, where's the... What do you do in the kitchen? Well, I like to eat, and I also love to put things together that make sense, and you know that in the end, to me, makes a perfect combination. You know, there they are, there are such things as incredible combination and things that don't really work. There are such a thing, just like some art. You're looking at a painting, and you're like, "Man, I don't get it." You know, if a thousand people in a row say, "I don't get it," there must be something wrong with that painting. <laughs> Maybe it's missing, I don't know, something. And yet, there's nothing wrong for it from the guy who's painting it. You know, it's the same with cooks. You see cooks from all different ranges, from the guy who's going to, I don't know, put a plate together that looks like a giant piece of doo-doo, and the guy who's going to pull as much love as he can into the plate, and everything in between. You know, and, and so there is, there is the, the artistic cook, and then there is the cook that, um, you know, I've always, to me, I've always been very conscientious of, or trying to be conscientious of, where the heck does the stuff come from? Where, you know, because I grew up on a small farm and everything was around me. So I never thought about it even when I was a kid, but when I got to America and realized then vegetable didn't smell like anything and everything tasted like veal and nobody liked lamb, people make funny face at rabbit, I'm like, what the hell is this country about? <laughs> but we love Twinkies. Bur yeah, and I'm like, okay, well that's the future. Burgers. <laughs> I so I had to make I had to make the the you know the the cultural uh, jump into you know basically understanding the differences. My first meal in America, this is a great story. You don't know that. <laughs> I landed in Chicago in 1978, and I landed in the building on La Salle and Clark Street. If you know Chicago, and the guy who was at the at the the concierge there was uh, this little old. Um, African-American man who had been to France during the war and spoke a little French. And I was famished. I'd been up for like, you know, you're traveling first time going to America, you know, so I've been up for like probably 48 hours. I don't know. I'm out of my mind. 
and I'm hungry. And uh, I said to the guy, you know, restaurant, you know, and he's like, I'm like, so he says, oh, yeah, yeah, no problem. Go around the corner. So I go around the corner. I don't speak very well English, obviously. So I go around the corner, and there's a, <clears throat> a restaurant. So I'm kind of like walk in, and I look up, and there's a sign above the what looks like the cooking line or the counter. And I see the word sandwich, and I recognize the word sandwich. I'm like, hey, I'll have a sandwich. At least I know that word, you know. And I'm thinking my beautiful baguette with my jambon and my cheese and butter. I'm like, oh, man, this is going to be killer. And I get the, you know, the sandwich, the sandwich on the top. So I get this big thing, big. That was the first thing that, whoa, that's a big sandwich. And I, what kind of mouth goes through that? Anyway, I got the sandwich, and then I took one bite, and I was like, what in the world is this? So it was RBQ's special sandwich. That's the first restaurant I went in America. Arby's? Arby's. Arby's was your introduction to American food? Introduction? Oh, man. What did you think? So now you understand why most foreigners who come to America think American only eat burgers and hot dogs. And, you know, and they always go, but you don't have a palate? And I, I have to tell the French people, no, 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 you have no idea. They're so adventurous, much more than you guys, actually. You know, because Americans are great that way. They will try anything because we don't really have, we're not bounded by one. We know we're, we're, we have this privilege of having all this bunch of culture mixed together. So you can, one day you can eat Chinese, next day you can eat Italian, you know. That would never happen in France. I mean, especially in my hometown. First of all, there's no, nobody goes out to restaurant in my hometown. They all cook at home. So. Is that true? No. I mean, pretty much everybody cooks at home. It's like... Out of 2,000 people, I'm pretty sure 1,999 people stay home and eat dinner at home. That's what you do. It's a town called Saint-Hilaire. That's good. I, I can tell you were going to do that. You start. You go. What's Saint, a shout-out? Saint-Hilaire de Loulet, which is why our new restaurant is called Loulet. Where is that? Just south of Nantes, uh, just below Brittany. It's about 35 miles from the ocean. And... It's a great place to be from and to be raised as a kid, but thank God I left when I was 14. Because <laughs> when I go back, it's the same way as when I left. <laughs> That's scary. Let's talk about your parents a little bit. I don't have any. No, just kidding. <laughs> That's a different story. That's another. Yes. Thing. But who were they and what did they, how did they raise you? To Both be raised on a small farm of uh, my father's uh, parents had a farm with about 14 cows, a horse, and they had a tractor, and they had a few machinery. My mother's side, which is where I spend a lot of my days um, off school, you know, we'd always end up there. It was next to a chateau. And my grandparents were holding the farm for the guy who owned the chateau. We didn't own the chateau. We just maintained the dirt. <laughs> it's like, we're, you know when you live right next to the chateau? You were That's the vassals. Literally, no, we were more like the, the slaves. The serfs? Yeah, the serfs. <laughs> exactly. Oh, I didn't know that was an English word. I know that's a French word. <laughs> yeah, we were the serfs. And uh, my grand, not me, but my grandparents for sure. But it was really, um, it was very, very cool. I mean, when you ask me what's my guilty pleasure, I always go back to sitting for breakfast in that large kitchen made out of stone, you know, I mean, very old, right across the street from the chateau. And it was a giant square of building, basically, with a big, giant entrance for all the, the farm, you know, haze and everything to come through. And when you sit in that kitchen, we had a fireplace, we had a wood stove, and my, my grandfather would bring the milk fresh drawn from the cows in the morning and put it on the wood stove, and we'd have a big loaf of bread about this long and this big, 
Well, that's when I was six years old, so maybe it's that big. <laughs> you know, don't you hate this shit when you go back to like where you were when you were six? You're like, oh man, this thing was so big, and you get there and you're like, what is that? That's why I haven't gone home again. I know. That's why you don't go back. You don't go back. You just go, keep the memory alive. Anyway, um, <laughs> the table was big. The chairs were, were giants. And the ceiling was really high. And uh, my grandmother would slice the bread. And we'd take a fork and stick it into the slice of bread and go on the fireplace. And we toast our bread on both sides. So it was, of course, always darker than it should have been because you only know to turn the bread when it's burning. <laughs> When else are you going to turn the bread? <laughs> so you take it away. And it was always a bit darker, and I love my bread over toasted. Don't ever give me a white piece of bread toasted, because I'm going to say, did you forget to put it in the oven? I go through that with my cooks all the time. I walk by, I'm like, do you know what we call this? They always get nervous. I go, we call this grill bread. Do you know why we call it grill bread? Because we actually sit it on the grill. Do you know why we sit it on the grill? So you can get grill mark and grill burn. <laughs> Yeah, it not, tastes better. Not white. Wait, so what? you would grill it? So we'd grill it on the fireplace, with a, holding it with a fork, you know, just yeah, yeah, right yeah. On, the, on the ashes, you know, and, and just like you do anything else, marshmallow or everything. And then we'd love that with a beautiful salted butter homemade. Ah. Oh, ho, ho. Then you dunk that in the hot cocoa. I see. That's your guilty. Now you got, when you were just talking bread, I've I was asked, thinking bread. I've been asked many times, if you were to die tomorrow, what would be your last meal? And I've always said, I want to sit back in that chair in the morning, smelling that toasted bread through the whole house, and then dunk that bread, and oh my God. It's just, you try to recreate that, and it, I get close as far as burning the bread. <laughs> but everything else is just missing a little something, that magic. You know that's not what I meant by guilty pleasure, though. You mean I like, mean, when do I cook unless naked? we define it differently here in America <laughs> than you do in France. But, you know, the thing that you, at least I think in our culture, we consider that to be the thing that we know we shouldn't be eating, but it's so good. But do you think I should be eating toasted bread with salted butter and hot cocoa? I don't cocoa see why not. At 11 o'clock at night? It seems healthy really? enough. <laughs> well, yeah, it's healthy if you do it once, but... I mean, well, what would yours be? Your guilty pleasure is not something you do once. It's something you do more often. True. And many people would think it would be, you know, I come home and I pencil a nice piece of foie gras or some duck breast with some. <laughs> but no, it's not. I mean, often enough, it's going to be hot cocoa and toasted bread. And I made a list. It. You made a list. You made a list. Yeah. And I, I think that probably candy is, is the one that would be at the top of. Really? Uh, yeah. Jelly beans and chocolate. That's unusual. What I've about, what about, what years, about food? And then cake. Oh, cake. Cake. We're getting closer. Cake. What kind of cake? <laughs> uh, German chocolate cake or a really white, a, a nice white cake with Angel food cocoa. cake? Nah, angel food. That's no. a little too, that's too spongy. That's too plastery yeah. for yeah, you? Yeah, yeah. And then uh, sweet cereals, a little Captain Crunch. <laughs> See, I didn't grow up with cereals, so I'm like, I couldn't care less about cereal. Crunch berries. Many kinds of crunch berries. I would Cinnamon. say, I would say uh, cheese, butter, and bread. Is definitely up there in my, you know, I don't look like this because I look at the menu, I actually eat the menu. But that's, that's what you should be eating. That's good food, isn't it? Well, uh, guilty pleasure means many different things. To me, guilty pleasure means you know that you shouldn't be eating the entire piece of cheese <laughs> and a uh, quarter pound of butter with uh, half a loaf of bread at 10 o'clock at night because So you're you've hungry. seen my son then. <laughs> Yeah, but your son can't get away with it. Oh, yeah. I can't do it anymore. <laughs> I, oh. What's yours? 
Uh, well, mine's movie theater popcorn, which is a good guilty pleasure to have because it costs a lot of money to get. <laughs> so you can't eat it that many. It costs a lot of. You don't. Well, like you have to go to the movies. No, no, no. Specifically, <laughs> movie theater popcorn. And um, if I'm you not, can buy if them I'm not hungry, undone, and you just put them in a the pot, turn on the heat. No, it's I guess the, not. It's, it's got to have the what, chemicals what, on it's it. The, it's the chemical and the, and the movie, the too. And the movie. What, what, you guys have any guilty pleasures in the, at this table? If you say no, you're lying, by the way. We know that already. We have to mic her, though. Red vines. Red vines. Who's, who says Twizzlers? All right. All right, let's just see how far we go here. You say Twizzlers. Oh, yeah. I love, and peanut butter. Peanut butter cream cheese and jelly. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Did you put bananas on that or no? I like that we could set up a Twizzlers red vine battle there. A chocolate truffle every day. Wait, that's what you do? Yes. Oh, yeah. You know what? If just you... one. Yeah, exactly. Oh, just, just one. See, that's the secret. It's moderation. Yes. Boxed mac and cheese. But I, I, I will throw away half the pasta to make it extra cheesy. <laughs> do, you add, do you add extra real cheese or do you just use what's in the mix? I'm more likely to add a lot of vegetables. Do you use the cheese that's in the, in the package, or do you put more cheese? Oh, I do both. Oh, but, yeah. But uh, the reason I throw away half the pasta is so that I can really max yeah, out I get the powdered you. cheese. You, you glutton on the good stuff. <laughs> yeah, I get you. Chef, what about those carambar, the caramels? Ah, well, there was those. I forgot about those. What are, now, what are those? Oh, <laughs> uh, like those French caramel wrapped in paper. Twisted, oh. then you, as a kid, we used to be for school at 8 o'clock in the morning by like a whole pack and be done by noon. Were you in France and eating that? Well, she was no, <laughs> I was just calling him out. He used to bring back bags of them when he would visit France. We worked together. And then we would all just be eating them constantly at 9 o'clock in the morning and pulling out our fillings <laughs> on those things because they're addictive, just like juji fruits or something like that. Yeah, but those are really good. They're really good. If you've never Very had carambar... You can find them, I think you can find them at like Trader Joe's or something like that. But uh, I try to not ever look at the shelf and um, try not to buy them because they won't be around for very long. Uh, graham cracker is the other thing with me. I love graham cracker. Just a straight graham cracker? Yeah. With, you know, coffee or whatever. I love eating graham cracker. Any, any guilty pleasures here? Anybody at this table? Guilty pleasure? Banana cream coconut pie. <laughs> and Fritos. The wait, wait the no, wait, not together. <laughs> yeah, you got to have salt and sweet. It's, You're crumbling. I'm sorry, but that's the truth. <laughs> you, you were, seen, you were you doing seen, great until the Fritos, man. <laughs> have you I seen them like, do that? Keep those separate. <laughs> My grandmother loved Fritos. That no, no, I mean, they can be, Doritos can be good, but, well, I mean, they're not good, but just... So we Mine. should call this the confessional. Yeah, this is the, the food confessional. We've got one more. The Tostitos queso sauce with mm -hmm. tortilla chips. That's not bad. It's terrible. I think that's it's pretty terrible. good that you, after his Arby's story that you said that. Guilty pleasures. The Arby's yeah. story. Do you serve guilty pleasures at either of your restaurants? Yeah, we serve a small dessert at Luke that I think is absolutely, well, it's all good stuff, but it's rich as hell and it's really, really delicious. But definitely, when you're done with it, it's a guilty pleasure. It reminds me of, uh, and you can weigh in on how you sell these desserts to people, but I used to work in a French pastry shop. And the woman used to talk to me about how to sell it because we lived in a very diet-conscious community. And so she would say, well, if people come in looking for something light, 
point them to the strawberry, uh, it was some sort of strawberry layer cake, just say, this one's lighter than the mousse. And ah. so I would say, well, this one's lighter than the mousse, and everyone would buy it. And she goes, and of course, that only refers to texture. <laughs> <laughs> so sorry, everyone. <laughs> it wasn't a diet product. How many people did you burn? <laughs> oh, I don't even know. <laughs> Endless. The mousse didn't sell very well, though. Yeah. I won't say that. <laughs> Well, everybody knew not to buy the mousse. Right. Everything was lighter than the mousse. But the mousse was a decoy. It never actually was really a mousse. Right. <laughs> well, I mean, that begs the question. Do you have to sell, do you have to present things in a certain way to get people to buy them? In a, or are people going to your restaurants knowing that they're going to go full on for the I think I think it just depends on, you know, you have to be able to have a menu where you, as a human being, can sit down and at any time of the day can be satisfied. So... If it's just a burger and a beer, you should have that. And if it's scrambled egg and caviar, you should have that too, because I feel like I want to do that. And everything in between. So I want to jump back a little bit more to like how you actually got here from France. Now, don't say by an airplane. No, I flew. <laughs> a given. The, I guess you could have taken a ship. No, but I got really, here how, just what's by the transition course. from surf on a farm to being a chef in Seattle? Um, I finished my army time in France, and I was looking for a job. And in the local paper, strangely enough, there's a little ad that says, looking for cook in USA. And I was like, oh, I'm just going to do that. I'll be back in six months with some money. And you're 20. You don't think further than that. I'm going to go to America for six months, make some money, and come back. Kind of slow on making the money part because that was 35 I, years ago. You elided something there for a minute. You, were in the, you had to be in the service? Uh-huh. For one year, for 12 months, you have to do a 12-month service. Well, you don't anymore. France actually got rid of that, of course, after I left. Yeah. What did you do? No, well, for, <laughs> the problem is, you know, army, that army time was absolutely fantastic for, same as college. You know, I think it's a great way to get those people in the middle of Arkansas in a small village out of town and get them to travel across the country and, you know, become a little bit more accustomed to meet other people from other parts and other cultures and so on. So the army was great for that, but I've already traveled all over Europe and France, and I've already been out of the house since I was 14. That was really pretty much a useless one-year time. That was when you were 18. But I was smart because <laughs> when I got to the army, you know, I was like, right away, of course, you're a cook. They were like, you go cook with the, uh, you know, for the soldier, 2,000 pound of potato every day, blah, blah. Well, and I was like, there is no way in the world I'm doing this. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kill myself. There's no way I'm doing this. So right off the bat, I get sidetrack, and I ended up cooking for the generals and the, you know, the higher echelon. So I was, there was actually one person, it was an army um, air force base. There was one person that needed to be on at night, like the guard. So I took the job. I had my own bedroom. <laughs> I had a pool hall with, with all the officers. So I was constantly with all the officers. I never met, a, pretty, pretty much never met a soldier in my whole time I was in the army. I was just with a you know, drinking was a general. Wait, and so how did they know you were a cook? So you, when you left home, you, were, you, you cooked for a few years? Just oh, I cooked. As I did a, a two-year apprenticeship when I was uh, 14 to 16. And then I traveled to the Mont Saint-Michel in Normandy, Chamonix in the Alps, Saint-Jean-de-Luz in the Basque Country. And then by the time I got to the Army, I had a little curriculum, and they were like, you can cook. You go cook for the general. So that was better than you're going to go peel potato for 2,000 people every day. So you wanted to be a cook from the time you were... Uh, a little kid? I, I mean, you just, leave home at 14. I was more like an ADD kid that couldn't stand still. I'm sure it's pretty apparent. I couldn't stand still in class, and 
I just wanted things to move faster than just been sitting in the chair and listening to somebody talking. Half of it was boring as hell, and the other half was boring. <laughs> <laughs> like, remember when Henry IV got assassinated? I'm like, who cares? It was 400 years ago. Oh, man. We know he died. We know somebody killed him. Well, let's know who killed him. But maybe more interesting is, who the hell is this guy who wanted to kill him so bad? What was his reason? That's more interesting to me. Yes, but you must have been the, the delight of every teacher. Oh, I was, I, was, I was supposed to get a bicycle for Christmas when I was 13 or 12. And instead, I got a giant slap from my dad. On my, that was the only time, but I will tell you, I remember. I'm 55 years old, and I still remember it. I never got the bike on that month. Because? I had to wait three more months. What'd you do? My grades were, uh, I was rated about 12 and a half out of 20 on the trimester, the first trimester. And uh, my dad came home, and my dad was a uh, very poor man, very super nice guy, but <laughs> super nice. Maybe not that yeah, day. Not that nice, yeah. <laughs> not from my point of view. What a great guy. I understood his, his pain, but if there was one thing you couldn't mess around was... Um, Things like that, you could not afford to be lazy anywhere, anytime, at any place if he was making sure that was going to happen. So he was not very happy about it. And he said, you know that bike you were going to get, that 10 speed you were going to get for Christmas? <whistles> Done. Unless I see those grades go back to 15 and 16. And I was like, okay, I can do this next week. <laughs> no, 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 don't, don't, no, don't cancel the bike. I can do this. Of course, I did it. And so so why did you choose food, though? I mean, it seems like there was a well, food was 14 fundamental thing. The, the main reason is because my mom convinced me that um, we, I had a cousin that was an apprentice in a restaurant, in an hotel restaurant, about 20 miles from my hometown. And it was a really well-reputated hotel restaurant. But he was a pinhead. And, uh, <clears throat> well, there is other words I could use, but pinhead sounded good. And um, <laughs> he totally, like, did the mutiny from the apprenticeship to the boss and whatever. Anyway, by the time he was done with <laughs> getting fired and doing all that, the boss was like, we're not hiring anybody. He didn't say from your family, but he's, we're not hiring anymore. <laughs> so I was like, oh my God, I was supposed to go there. So I was, I was like one week from the end of my school. So I started scrambling and I went into a different place and I found not too far away from that in another town and it turns out to be the worst nightmare ever. I had a People ask me all the time, so would you recommend going straight into a restaurant and learn how to cook, or would you go to school? What should I do? And I say, absolutely go to goddamn school. Stay in school. Because when you're 14 years old, there's no way in the world this can be your decision. Yeah. You, you just, you're not possibly mature enough to make that decision. And the worst part is because of you know, where I came from at the time. You never argued about things that were done to you or... You know, people would beat you up and this all kind of, diff I mean, crazy stuff. And I always promised I would never, ever do this to anybody else because I was shaking every single day for two years. I mean, I had a nervous breakdown after a year in apprenticeship. And the worst part is I went back to the same place. <laughs> Who the heck Nobody was said, maybe we should put him back in the same cage with the same lion. Who the heck was beating you up? The chef, where I was. He was a company asset. Uh. <laughs> yeah, well, you're not on Cairo now. Oh, so. never mind. Oh, the guy was a... <laughs> the guy was a beep, 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 beep. <laughs> so how does that mean for what you do in your kitchen? 
while uh, in my restaurant, I have a rule. Nobody's allowed to scream louder than me, and I don't scream. So that's the start of the beginning. And to me, I, I strongly believe in education. I believe in um, if you're the leader, you're in charge. If you're in charge, back up. Everything goes up to you. Anything that goes wrong is yours. And the reason it's wrong, it's because somewhere along the line, you could have done a better job. But if everything goes right, it's all they're doing. You've told them how to do it, and they're doing it great. Can I attest to that real quick? Because Terry, um, a, a, a young man who's a friend of mine, uh, he hired and he wanted to be in, in restaurant work. And Terry let him come and work for, what, six months, three, six months? Yeah, yeah. Inspired him, gave him that opportunity. He's in Australia working with one of the top chefs in Melbourne. They're opening their own restaurant. Isn't that cool? Because and you. That's cool. I'm know, excited about and, that. And you inspired him. You gave him just what you said. You gave him the opportunity to learn and not to be afraid. Well, I mean, I. I have a very strong disbelief in. It was done to me, so I'll do it to others. That's kind of shit does not fly very well with me. It's like. You got to break the chain. It's not, you know, we don't always have the tools, but I strong. This is becoming a psychology class. <laughs> food is. That's what food is. Uh, I strongly, I strongly have no belief that if you know something is wrong, and if you're really good at what you do, the only way you can call yourself really good is if you can fix it and make it better, or change it, or try something else. But if it's not working and you know it, why? You know, there's no reason to keep doing it. You go. Well, you go, Hugo. <laughs> we're like, it's my turn, my turn. Well, why would you say that there's a reputation then for a lot of chefs being very angry? Like, ang for the cooking same angry. I just explain. It's, yeah. I've worked with some very talented chefs, but I would never call them chef. First of all, so everybody's aware, um, everybody's a chef today. It's a name that, that's probably one of the few professions in the last 50 years that has become famous and totally bastardized at the same time. You get a kid who goes to school, he goes, I'm a chef. You're like, oh yeah, what do you do? How long have you been cooking? Oh no, I'm a, I just started school last month. I'm like, okay, so normally I would be called a cook. Oh, actually an apprentice. <laughs> but anyway, um, I don't have a grudge against that. Some chefs do because they feel like it's unprotecting their value or whatever. To me, the value is on what you do every day. It's how you treat people. It's how you, oh, no, the outcome comes out no matter what. So it's not so much about the title. But I don't know. To become a chef is, um, there's a lot of angry chef out there because chef is attractive to many people who don't really have a great social, I mean, in a line on what's called a line cook, which is those guys who are sauteing those pans all day long. You know, they can do it for like 200 people and, barely break a sweat, and those guys are like, you see them and you're like, my God, what, how do they do this shit? Uh, <clears throat> how do they do that? <laughs> and uh, you do that by repetition, you do that by burning yourself a hundred times and not say anything, and because you swallow your pride and you're tough, and I'm gonna freaking make it because the guy before me made it. It's kind of like being in a submarine, and you know, there's a guy who wants to drill a hole, but everybody's like, no, no, don't drill a hole. It's been done before, it doesn't work. <laughs> it's like, just keep, man, you're sweating, it's, that's the way it's supposed to be. And I guess I'm not that macho guy. I'm much more, uh, I'm not that kind of believer because I've experienced the, um, the, the, the extreme of like, 
you know, abusing people and so on and so forth. And I don't find that very actually appealing or I didn't learn nothing from that bastard. Nothing. That guy never taught me anything except fear. And you can't teach by fear. And the fact that many chefs are disgruntled is because they have not evolved into the next step up. They haven't grown out of that, that um, nervousness that comes up with the pressure that is associated with just basically cooking every day for, you know, if you have 20 tickets, you know, food tickets that come, 20 orders that come onto your line, and you're looking at those tickets and you're going, shit. <laughs> You've got 15, 20 minutes to pull this stuff out, right? So some days it doesn't work very well. Some days it works great. Some days you're like, oh, man, you're drinking that beer outside the kitchen after a long night, and you're like, man, that was the best night ever. I did the food right. Everything went fine. And some nights it's just like 20 minutes into it, it's complete chaos. One, chain of the, one link of the chain breaks, and boom, the pastry, the pastry guy or the pantry guy doesn't come up with those two salad at the same time as everybody else, and now it's chaos. It's just complete chaos because it's a, it's a music show. It's like, you know, everybody has to time together. So some people lose their shit. We call it losing your shit. <laughs> <coughs> they lose their crap pretty often. And the people who do it often, usually I have a talk with them. In my kitchen, I have a talk with them once. I have a talk with them twice. And the third time I said, you know, this is not going to be working very well because you are still screaming louder than me, and I don't like people to scream louder than me. So we need to figure out a different job for you in the kitchen and figure out how we're going to make you stay here if you want to stay here. But if you want to stay here, you're going to have to show me the progress because I don't have a problem. I'm not screaming, but you do. So we need to stop that and figure out how, you know, how do we reach those limits where you're not going to explode like a baby. <laughs> I, have, I have to tell a story. Go ahead. I was a line cook. For a long time at Julia's on Eastlake. Oh, yeah. Eastlake. And, uh, Did you lose your shit? So um, <laughs> one night, I had, I, I probably had about 20 pans on the saute pans going. And uh, I put a little too much of whatever I was putting in that and started, a, you know, to get the flame. I'm pretty sure it was wine, but, you know, shot up. And we had not done a very good job of cleaning the uh, screens, the grill <laughs> screens. And, all, and I had 20 pans, right? And I went... Like that. Oh, man. Big flame. And all of a sudden, it was like, and everything was turning red. All They were all melting and turning molten red and, and started dripping down. And uh, I, was, I was in shock. And the dishwasher, a good friend of mine, walks up, and he looks at me, and he looks at that, and he looks at me again. He says, uh, fire extinguisher? <laughs> and I said, yeah. And he gets the fire extinguisher. But anybody ever been to Julius and he's like, Everybody in the restaurant sees that happen. I know, it's an open <laughs> it's kitchen. It's an open kitchen. So that was, uh, but I, I did not lose my shit. And we still got, you know, a half an hour later. That yeah. We were you backed just, up a little bit. Stop buying cocktail for everybody. <laughs> I was in a restaurant in Chicago. Um, when I was in Chicago, I was in a restaurant. And we had a pan um, of roasting duck, six roasting duck in pretty deep. And they were just roasting in there. Of course, they ran the whole lot fat, right? So you end up with all that fat. Turns out to be the pan had been there for a while. Uh, we, we do it like three, four times a week. There was a hole in the pan, unbeknownst to anybody. So the fat started leaking in the oven. And of course, so the, at the time, I was just like a lead line cook. There was a sous chef who was 
bigger than you, like tall and big French guy. And there was a, a short French chef who had a okay temper. And then there was about five Mexicans. And that actually, uh, <clears throat> side note, first language I learned in America, Spanish. So don't ever diss the Spanish people. Because yeah. in case it's not noted, you need to learn Spanish in America. That's uh, the first language I had to learn was Spanish, mainly because I had to be able to converse with my coworkers. Yeah, restaurant um, Spanish. Yeah, restaurant Spanish. But anyway, so this guy, this, this sous chef, opened the door of the oven, obviously, like this flame. <laughs> This instant flame, I'm laughing because the whole time I thought it was hilarious. The whole, flame, the whole flame comes out of the oven. We're talking duck fat. Nothing. Not a fire extinguisher is going to stop, especially a little puny little thing like this. And you never put water on fat. If you have fat on fire, I'll tell you another story when I was apprentice. Anyway, so suddenly, within one minute, the five Mexicans were out of the kitchen, the chef was out of the kitchen, and the sous chef was out of the kitchen. I'm like, you f <laughs> my what? You guys gonna let the freaking restaurant burn down for a pan of ducks? So I grab a bag of flour and I throw it in the oven and stop the fire. And they were like, "Oh yeah, you know." And I'm like, "You guys are just a bunch of crazy. This is nuts, man. It's like you can't just leave the kitchen when there is a little fire like this. What the hell is that?" I was so. <laughs> I was anyway. That was a very funny story. Afterward, it was funny, but on the spot, I was like. Whoa, I felt like the guy who goes, charge, and where is everybody? <laughs> anyway, um, in, when I was apprentice, uh, about a year into it, there was another guy with me who was much bigger than me, and the chef would never pick on him because he lived in that town, um, and his, parent, his father was an old ex-Marine, a bit, a bit <laughs> nuts, so it was like he couldn't mess with him because you know, the father would have come and shot him. Anyway, one day we're taking a break from... <laughs> Uh, for la after lunch on a Sunday, and um, suddenly the fryer, the fryer was in the corner of the kitchen. Suddenly the fryer takes on fire, the fire, the fryer goes on flame. But you know, it was, I mean, the chef was such an ass. It was old oil, you know, the, the kind of recent, oh, anyway. The oil takes on fire, <laughs> the fryer takes on fire, and we both apprentice, and I never ate. I smoked Gaulois at the time, I was 15 years old, non filter Gaulois for lunch. By the way, we had the same dinner. <laughs> That's what you did, because you... Yeah, Thank God I wasn't a drinker, because otherwise I would have been a drunk by age 15. <laughs> anyway, um, the, fryer, the fryer starts off. This guy who's next to me grabbed the first water bucket he finds, and he's going like this. And I felt like I was watching a slow motion movie. I'm going, no! And he goes, and I'm going, <laughs> so I'm jumping out, and... We're talking a ceiling that high. The whole, the whole oil went like straight up to the to the ceiling and back down. I don't know why, but it did get extinguished. Actually, as a matter of fact, when it came back down, it was there's no more fire. But imagine, God, this could have been the most crazy thing for somebody. Would have been close to that. So never throw water in oil. Okay, bad idea. Okay, we have, we have something to take away from tonight. <laughs> if yeah. we learn nothing else. I just, I, you haven't yet given me the answer I want. Okay, go ahead. Keep trying. Because you could have gone at 14, you could have been, I don't know, other things. So, but food was the thing you chose. Yes, and the main reason is because um, 
there was an artistic outing, and I wasn't thinking that way, but there was a way for me to just, I'm like, oh, food is cool, you know, you can create something. But most importantly, my mom said to me, you know, it's a great job. You can travel the world around, always be fed, always be warm, <laughs> and you can always find a job anywhere on the planet. People will always eat. And I'm like, oh, this is so awesome. Where do I sign up? Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> That's how they get you. <laughs> has, has anybody, did anybody ever eat at Rovers? Did they, yeah. Yeah. I, I have a question. Yeah. Yeah, there you go. I mean, Katie and I got to eat there once together. And, I, and it was lunch, right? Mm -hmm. And I remember leaving there going, what did I just experience? I mean, that was just the flavor was incredible. Oh, that was the drugs. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, look, you're going to get to Ooh. eat while you, you get to eat and talk. Would you like to know what you're eating? Uh, yes. No. I would love to. We have king salmon poached in olive oil with a coconut farro salad with fresh tomatoes and parsley. Nice. I love farro. I eat farro for breakfast all the time. Farro is a great, great grain. It's one of the most complete grain we have. The Romans were very big on farro. They used farro a lot. It's a great grain because you can cook a whole bunch of it. Like I usually buy a one-pound bag at, at Whole Food and put it in a pot, boil it while I'm doing something else. 20 minutes down, put it away, and then I have it in the fridge. And in the morning, I just take that and put a little milk in there, toasted almond. Great for breakfast. Yeah. Are you leaving? No. Kate's taking <laughs> off. She was done. I love out here. I love Steve. I, was, I love. I didn't even click when you said, "Are you leaving?" I was like, "She's probably leaving." <laughs> Why are we miking you? We're miking you because we're recording this too. Oh. I Never forgot. mind. <laughs> so many of us here probably miss rovers. But in addition to Rovers, we've lost Le Gourmand, yeah. Campania, we've lost uh, Chez Chez. So I could go through a litany oh, of, I could name of you French restaurants that we've lost over the last, what, five, seven years. What, uh, you know, we still have Le Pache, lovely restaurant, yours, your new one, and Luke. So what, 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 what's your comment on why, you know, we have hundreds of, of Italian restaurants. What? Why are we missing so many French restaurants? <laughs> Yeah, but we only have two great French restaurants that makes up all the Italian restaurants. Just kidding. <laughs> I always make fun of... I'm sorry, I, I have to pick on one country, so I pick Italian because it's easy. <laughs> I, always go, I always go, Italian food? You know, Italians invented cooking, but thank God we perfected it. <laughs> <Ba -dum, boom. laughs> cooking pasta, you know, I mean, come on. Just teasing. I got plenty more where that come from, though. I'll be here all night. To answer your question, I think that 25 years ago, let's just pick 25 years ago as a, as a benchmark. Some of us can relate, some of us were not born, so that's a, it's just going to be the average. Uh, about 25 years ago, people used to go to a restaurant as an event, as a celebration. It was not an everyday story, uh, especially a fine dining restaurant. It, it was an occasion. You were not, it's not something you did every day. We have transformed that into the privilege of Eating, I mean, I saw somebody at lunch today at Wild Ginger who said, I'll be at your restaurant tonight. And I was thinking, I love this life. <laughs> We're in a freaking restaurant for lunch and for dinner. I'm like, how much better can life be? Anyway, it's, it's the way it is now. You know, we eat out five to ten times a week. I mean, it's just the way 
people just don't, don't cook at home as much as they used to, mainly because number one reason is because they can. If they can in a way of it's becoming part of life. It's part of a lifestyle to go out and try different foods. And it's fun. And the food style has changed so much. I mean, 25 years ago, there was not, when I first came but, to Seattle, it was not that many great restaurants. But what they're asking also is, is it hard to do quality French food at a price that can compete with the number of restaurants that are pretty decent? I yeah. think it's the, that relation of fine dining French style, three hours dining, multi-course dinner, take your time, buy a nice bottle of wine. Again, it's an event. Even in France, French people don't go out every single night to every restaurant. It doesn't work like that. Nobody does that. It's the same reason as people would always ask me, why is it that when I go to a, a three-star or two-star in France, I can't find a goddamn vegetable on the menu? And I used to say, you know why? Because French people eat vegetables every freaking meal of their life. They grow them in the back of their house. They have a backyard. They don't, you know, many of them, like in my hometown, everybody, they grow, we grow our own vegetable. When you go to a two- or three-star restaurant, I'm eating lobster, caviar, foie gras. I'm going to eat the stuff I can get when I'm at home. So I'm eating protein. I'm not eating the vegetable. I get that every day. Are they also like test, not testing, but experiencing the skill of a chef and the way we would well, experience yeah, other art? There is that too. If you cook every day, you know, if, you, if your mother cooks every day and everything, you already have a, a, a certain surrounding in your culture with cooking, with food, with taste with many different exposure to many different things. I mean, today could be a rabbit, tomorrow could be a quail, no, no, next day. So when you go to a restaurant, you expect to see craftsmanship. You expect to see something you would never do at home. You know, you don't want to go to a restaurant and go, I could make this in five minutes in my house. In most cases, that pieces of the customer because <laughs> they go, why am I paying 20 bucks? I could slice those cucumber and put some vinaigrette on it. You know, so you got to kind of like show some craftsmanship. You got to show a reason why you're here and why there is a transaction going on between you and them. You know, you go see a show, if the guy can't sing better than you do, you can go, I want my money back. <laughs> right? I mean, it's very simple. Or you go see a movie that you could have made on your 8-millimeter camera. <laughs> Boy, you dated yourself. Well, I was old. <laughs> but is that, is that still the expectation today if we're people who eat out for every single meal? Or are we just looking for good enough? Well, I think, I think that uh, for sure, Dining has been transformed into an event. People make that part of their lifestyle, part of their, it's an event. But it's an event that has changed. It's not a three hour, I know a lot about French wine, blah, blah, blah. It's not that anymore. I want to be having a great, simple meal, not too expensive. I don't want to break the bank because I want to do it again for the next three nights with my girlfriends. So I want to do it. I want to do it as many times as I can because it's fun. You're in a different environment. You just change the theater. So it's kind of like if somebody was changing the curtain every five minutes, you're like, well, this is cool. I'm in a new room. You know, it's like, so it's the same kind of principle, and that's part of the dining experience. You know, dining experience is not just what's on the plate. It has to do from the minute you call to the minute you get rid of it. <laughs> I used to make that joke, but it's true. What do you do at, at Lula's? To, uh, am I saying it right? Lule. 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 I was doing it wrong all day. Lule. That creates that experience. So for Lule, we were trying to provide a urban, modern surrounding into a very, very accessible restaurant. Try to picture this. It's 1958 in the best diner in America, in some town in America, owned by Mary and Joe. Monday night, roast beef. Tuesday night, 
pork shoulder, Wednesday night. You know, the, the diner, the whole town goes to the diner because it's a good place to go. You take that and you put it in the time capsule and you put it in the fastest growing city in America in 2020, which is five years from now ahead, and you get Lule. Are you there? I sell my soul to everybody who wants it. I want to, in just a few moments, bring up Aaron Brinley, who's the one cooking tonight, to talk about presentation and Type of cooking. dining out and we performance. We still haven't tried this. Yeah, you can try it. How come yeah. there's only one fork? You I'm guys saying know that to give her a warning. That Are you guys on diet? I, I feel that I can't talk with my mouth full. Me neither. Yeah, but yeah. you have to. <laughs> I do it all the time. <laughs> She's going to explain what kind of molecular gastronomy we have going on for dessert tonight. But would you say that it's, I mean, it's great for you, but is it a bad thing that we're all stopping cooking and going out? I mean, is it something to do with us not cooking anymore? First of all, I think it's the other way around. I think think from the the 50s to the probably mid-80s, there was definitely a regression in people spending more time in the kitchen. But I think the movement, um, especially on the West Coast, I think we, we stopped. Just so everything is clear, is there anybody from the East Coast here? No. Because we stock everything on the West Coast, and then you guys take it and make it famous. Then we get that out of the way right off the bat, especially in New York. Specialists at doing that. Anyway, I think that, especially on the West Coast, we've, we started in the last 20, 25 years, between the chefs, the young chefs, more and more people on the market to cook and educate the public. I think that more and more people are conscientious of their surrounding. They also, they want to cook. It's not that they don't want to cook. They just don't want it to be a pain in the ass like every single day mom used to do, like lunch, dinner. and They don't have the time to do that. But people, many, many, many people, and more than ever, people like to get in the kitchen and spend the time in the kitchen because it's fun. You're with your better half in the kitchen. Music is cranking. You get some nice, sexy music going on. Bottle of wine is open. Fire is on. The kitchen is burning. Honey, what are we going to do next year? Oh, that was Steve's story. <laughs> I was going to say, you've been to my house. <laughs> no, but I mean, I think there is plenty going on in the kitchen. And I think people like to be in the kitchen. They just don't want it to be, you know, they just don't want it to be that everyday chore that their mother or grandmother used to have. And just so you know, you know, my grandparents did that because they didn't have a choice. They were, that was just the setting. But my grandmother had 12 kids. She had more sous chefs than I've ever had. <laughs> She wasn't the one doing everything in the house, you know, and, and she could have more kids because there was more kids to take care of the kids that were just born. <laughs> uh, you know, it's a different setup. We live in a very different life. The urban setting is obviously growing, growing, growing. The urban setting has been growing for the last 30 years. So we all live in cities. We all live a crazy life, and some of it has to give. I'm glad it's the restaurant part because it keeps me and John in business. <laughs> Let's bring out Aaron. Erin Brindley is the food designer and the artistic director of Cafe Nordo, which is where we all are tonight. And she's also the one making your dinner, so come on out, Erin. You back there? Come on, Erin. There she is. Come over here. Come up here for a moment. Come up here for a moment. Now, I wanted to bring you out because... Thank you for the food, yes. by the way. Delicious. Katie, would you like to try it? Not yet. I'm going to talk to Aaron for one second. Go ahead, though. Oh, I know. I know. I've had Aaron forever. So I wanted to bring Aaron out, not only because we've been friends for years, but because she's also into molecular gastronomy, which is a 
Why don't you describe what that is to everybody? <laughs> I like how Katie tries well, to describe it. It's a um, we're calling it modernist cuisine now. <laughs> Sorry. Um, basically, it's just looking at the different science and structures of how food works. For me, personally, the reason I play with this stuff is because a lot of times at Nordo, our main stage shows are all about storytelling with your food. So a lot of times I get to really play with people's senses in a really theatrical way. I mean, we're half theater and half dining experience. So, um, for instance, one menu, we did everything to make it look like it was all breakfast, but it was all savory and dinner. So, for instance, dessert was a nitro scrambled egg. It looks like scrambled eggs, but it tastes like vanilla ice cream. And um, bacon made out of caramel and chocolate. So, it kind of just bends your mind a little bit and in increases the... Um, uh, I don't know, imagine, imaginative aspect of the... I'm sorry, I'm out of breath. I'm running up and down those stairs and cooking for you guys. So. <laughs> um, but anyway, the, the storytelling aspect of it. For us, so for us, it's really about making the art arrive performatively on your plate. So, yeah, we get to... And, like, other things that we've done that have worked with the gastronomy thing... I mean, I love liquid nitrogen. You guys will have some liquid nitrogen ice cream later. It's, like, my favorite toy. Um, and then, you know, gelatin, like a beet caviar, caviar made out of um, beet juice, things like that, that just kind of bend the mind a little bit. You expect, like, expect it to taste like one thing, and then it tastes like another thing. So that's what I do. Does so, the beet taste like beet or caviar? It tastes like beets. It looks like caviar, it looks but it like tastes caviar. like beets. It tastes like beets and explodes in your mouth like, uh, like caviar. Yeah. Like a little gel bonbon. I mean, the example I kept telling Steve when I when we were talking about what Erin does is I was talking about a soup she made in one performance where I believe it was... Um, like had basil on it, right? Mm -hmm. But the basil, the way that they did it was they held it over liquid ice or liquid nitrogen. Ah, yes, okay, yep. Here, describe that because it's so amazing. So this was actually something that we did in the performance. We had a hot soup that was poured table side and then one of our, our characters had a bowl of liquid nitrogen and she did um, herbal whipped cream dollops. Um, for Frozen. for your soup, so they so she would she would make these little whipped cream dollops into the liquid nitrogen, freeze them, and then plop them into your soup, and then it was like fog going over, and it was it was supposed to take place in like an ancient witch's, um, uh, and she was an herbalist, she was an herbal healer, was what she was, but she was you know some kind of magical metaphysical character. So we had her creating this fog out of your soup, and then she would dip um, big bunches of herbs into the liquid nitrogen and just kind of crumble them over everyone's soup. So what it ended up being was a very um, herbal and fragrant and, uh, and as well as like visually pretty stunning. It's fun, yeah. It is fun. <laughs> I mean, what do you think of that, Terry? Is that anything that you ever mess around with, these oh, yeah, more I've, sort of high-tech? I've messed around with a lot of that stuff, but it's, um, it's a very hard reproduction for a restaurant. It's only possible to do in smaller setting or in setting that are set. But in a restaurant part, it's extremely uh, difficult. Um, I can tell you that some of the originator of uh, those uh, movements um, called molecular gastronomy, that, that was the name that was given to it. Um, some of the originator of that are so busy that they don't even sous vide their own meat or, or cook their own meat or break it down. They, have a place they do it in Washington, D.C., and send the meat to all their restaurants. I mean, because there are many difficulties. I mean, you've all heard of the word sous vide, which means under emptiness, basically. That's what it's translated to, which is you suck the air out of a bag with some piece of whatever you have in there, protein or vegetable, whatever. 
So basically, there is no more contact with air. So you put that in the water bath, and if you control the temperature as well as they do in places like uh, science laboratory or whatever places like that, they have those those uh, thermal whatever. Yeah. 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 Immersion know. baths, right? Thank you, immersion yeah. baths, yeah. And that keeps the temperature absolutely to the tenth of a degree. So there is no chances of the fluctuation that happens on the stove. When you're cooking with a pan, there's always, you don't know this because that's not what you care about, but there are plenty of fluctuation of temperature from just keeping a pan on the fire. Gas does not maintain the same heat. Uh, you know, there's many different things. But in those water baths, temperature is even. The way human brain works is we need to mess with everything before we figure out how to stop it. We create shit before we know what to do with it. So the molecular gastronomy movement was like an artistic explosion. Some of them the craziest shit ever. Uh, you know, for a while there was a craze with powder. I went to a restaurant in LA five years ago when it, the craze of the powder was starting, and the guy served me three courses of the same goddamn powder on every plate, and I was like, if he serves it to me make. one more time, <laughs> I'm like, you're missing the point. This is not fun. Now, when somebody has the time to play with a little bit of nitrogen and you know, freeze some little pearls of tomatoes sauce and turn it into a nice frozen skew to put in your Bloody Mary, I'm, I think it's fun. I think if you can, it's fun, especially at home. But in a restaurant environment, first of all, nitrogen is a very dangerous item. Make sure you know what the hell you're doing before you start using it. Because if you put your finger, and never go and see where it is at. Because your finger will be right off the bat cut off. So uh, there is a German chef who actually lost both of his hands because he dropped the actual container that he was playing with. You're sending Aaron down to do this ice cream after that story. Yeah. I, that, <laughs> I need to go to the ice I know, I know. I just, wanna, I just I want think, you to, one more thing before, we'll, we'll let her go get the dessert. Go ahead. The dessert in order. Um, what is it? What are you doing down there? Oh, I'm doing, so uh, the custard is fin is just has just finished, which ordinarily when you make ice cream, that needs to finish way before. But so I've got the custard just finished. It's a vanilla custard. I'm going to go add the liquid nitrogen, which the benefit of doing ice cream with liquid nitrogen is it freezes really, really fast. So the crystals are very, very tiny, and it is going to be the creamiest ice cream you've ever tasted because it doesn't take quite as long to freeze, so the crystals don't have time to get bigger. So, and we're going to do that, and we're going to do some bourbon peaches, which I'm going to get some bourbon from the bar. How long, how long can you leave the ice cream in the, in the nitrogen? Well, I, I mean, I'm, I'm just going to pour it in and mix it. it you can leave, so it'll just get super hard and frozen, and then when you eat it, it'll burn your mouth, but <laughs> you do what you don't want to do. But, but I, think of, I think of liquid nitrogen. So those are the little just... things, she's not mentioning that, but those are the little things you need to know. Yeah. Just as I was trying to make a point, it's, it's like the stuff that, that's also another specialty of most cooks, is they will do things because... Just because that's what you I do. I would argue it's just as dangerous as fry oil, though, if yeah. not less. Oh, yeah. Oh, no, no, no. Fry I'm not oil, you can, I mean, I have more burns from fry oil than, than liquid well, you nitrogen. Would, you wouldn't have sure. many of the liquid nitrogen. <laughs> that's true. No, I did burn my Look, tongue. Look, I can once. see you from here. I did take a good chunk out of, off my tongue once. That's true. Yeah. That will not happen tonight. No, 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 no. Everything's just going to be nice and creamy and wonderful. All right. Okay. Okay. We'll let you go. Thanks, Aaron. I mean, it is that question of food and art, right? Uh, not only, I mean, here literally at Nordo, it's food and art combined, but how does somebody like me, home cook, bring some sort of artistry into 
either what I'm presenting to myself or to me and my husband or to the way I'm going about doing it so it has more pleasure. Well, I think the artistry of cooking starts with the taste. You know, you the plate, how it looks, is base two. It's not base one. I think base one, when you cook, is taste. you got to taste your food. You will never, ever send a plate ever, ever again in your life to a table without tasting it first. We oui, chef. Oui. <laughs> no, I recommend that very strongly because how often does that happen? You put it on the table and you go, damn, there's no salt in here. <laughs> Why? Because you didn't taste it. Otherwise, there would be some. <laughs> Keep trying your food because it changes as you, just like anything that's live and um, especially cooking, reducing, whatever, it changes uh, changes form, and you should always taste your food. In the end, that's priority number one. How does it taste? Because ultimately, you have to eat it, right? Yeah. You got to swallow it, and a smile with it would be very nice, <laughs> as opposed to a grin like, mm. what is that? So yes. that's priority number one. Learning how to present your food in an artistic way is in the eye of the beholder, and it's also a growing matter. The more you cook, the more you're going to go, oh, shit, let me put a little chopped parsley on this. Or let me, let me just get this ring and pack this thing in here so, oh, look, it looks beautiful. I mean, there's all kind of stuff, like, you know, so many different things you can play with. But I would say the number one focus to start, just make sure it tastes good. Because that gets forgotten sometimes, and that's a terrible thing. Because ultimately, it's not your eyes who are going to do the job. It's going to be your mouth. Even if it doesn't look quite as good, but it tastes delicious, you'll remember that. All right. Yeah. Well, as I always say on my podcast every week, we should leave it there and let these people have dessert. And uh, thank you, everybody, for coming out and seeing the show. And thank you, yeah, Terry. Thank you, Terry, for coming. My great pleasure. That's Chef in the Hat, Terry Rotaro, live on stage with me, Katie Sewell, and veteran NPR host Steve Scher. Support The Bittersweet Life by subscribing to the show and rating us on iTunes. And if you can afford it, consider a donation. Independent art is expensive and time-consuming to make. We really can't do it without you. You'll find a link to donate in the upper right-hand corner of our website, thebittersweetlife.net. Thank you so much for all you do, and I'll talk to you next week. Thank you.